I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show and podcast where readers meet writers. Welcome. It's good to have you here. Here's an inescapably brutal truth about the work that our guest does. He writes, in trauma surgery, heroism and futility often walk hand in hand, and sometimes it's hard to know the difference. Dr. Brian H. Williams has treated the grievously injured, many of them from gunshot wounds, in city hospitals throughout the country. He has comforted parents who have lost a child and partners whose loved one has just perished on the operating table. And as a black surgeon, he has encountered bigotry from patients, their families, and colleagues. He writes in his new memoir, To be black in medicine is to give the nod, remain silent, and pretend this kind of talk doesn't matter. Dr. Williams is an Air Force Academy grad, has been part of and led trauma surgery teams in many hospitals, and is active in efforts to decrease gun violence. His new memoir is titled The Bodies Keep Coming, and he joins us from Dallas, Texas. And Dr. Williams, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you very much, Carrie. It's an honor to be a guest on your show. Is it right to say that you made your decision to become a doctor at a bar with a beer in your hand and a friend who said he was going to become a doctor? So would you describe that night? That is so true, and it really sounds absurd, but that is the reality. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a friend of, and I were at a bar after a college football game, both academy grads, both aeronautical engineers, discussing the next step in our Air Force trajectory. And he told me he was going to medical school. And I had thought about that myself in the back of my mind for about a year or two, but I didn't think it was possible because I assumed he had to be pre-med as an undergrad, which I wasn't as an aerial engineer. But he explained to me that because of the rigorous core curriculum that we take at the service academies, that we covered the pre-medical requirements, which was an eye-opening to me. And that's why I decided literally beer in hand, set it down and said to him, well, I'm going to go to medical school too. What do you think appealed? I mean, why did it feel like the right decision for where you were in your life, knowing, you know, all the schooling that was ahead? Well, I've always been very interested in the sciences. Uh, I was was a pretty good student uh, throughout my younger years in school with the the STEM uh, classes. And I had a large network of friends who were working in healthcare. So socializing with them and hearing about what they were doing in the hospital, I was always intrigued that every day they went to work and had a chance to help people, sometimes in their darkest hours. And spending more time with them, I thought, like, this would be a great uh, job to have. And at that time in my career, uh, where I had to make a choice about where I was going to take my next step, it seemed like a good uh, it seemed like the right time to make that transition. And it was, a, it was a hard right turn, right? I was on this trajectory uh, as an engineer doing uh, research and development in the Air Force and decided, you know what, I'm going to get off of that path and take this new path in, into medicine. And uh, I don't regret it. It, it, was, it was tough and long, but in the end, it was, I look back and think that that was definitely the right decision for me. Now I want you to describe the night that I I think one of the nights that was influential in you deciding that trauma surgery would be your specialty. And I'm thinking of the night that you were at Tampa General Hospital and someone who has been wounded from a gunshot is brought in 
Can you describe what happens next? Yes, yeah, so I was a medical student at that time, and throughout medical school, our third year, we spend time going on different rotations. And this rotation for me was the trauma surgery rotation. And I had yet to decide what kind of doctor I wanted to be at that point. Uh, so I was still pretty open. But a gunshot victim came in. The team responded. It looked to me like chaos, but everyone knew their role. And they just went all out to save this patient. And I just thought at the moment, yes, this is what I want to do. I was really drawn in by the the, the fast pace, the quick decision making, uh, the fact that they could bring people near death back from the brink and they could leave the hospital alive. Uh, so when I saw how that worked and what happened, I said, okay, absolutely, I want to be a trauma surgeon. Uh, but also in that moment, looking, reflecting back, I see how that was an example of many of the inequities that exist in healthcare today when it comes to access to healthcare and racial disparities. So there's a lot encapsulated in that one scene that has really informed how I view my role in medicine today. I've got your book open to this this scene <clears throat> that we're describing, and the the uh, one of the doctors. Again, you're a medical student. You're observing this. But one of the doctors tells the team to set up for this particularly particular operation. Pronounce it for me, if you would, and tell me what what it is. And we should say that it becomes very important in your career later on. But what is it? Yes, this is in what we call an emergency department thoracotomy. Okay. For short, we'll say ED thoracotomy or just thoracotomy. So essentially when patients come in with penetrating trauma to the thorax or like a gunshot wound to the chest and they are coding and they're near death, one of the last options to save someone's life during that uh, um, moment is what we call an ED thoracotomy, which requires about a foot-long incision. If you you feel along the left side of your rib cage Mm -hmm. between two ribs, we will do an incision between two ribs, put in... uh, uh, an expander, what we call a finishetto re- retractor, so we can get a view of what's inside the chest, the lungs, the heart. And we do this in the emergency department because seconds matter in trauma. We do not have time to get to the OR to fix this. And while we're there, we try to stop the bleeding and keep someone alive enough, long enough, just so we can get them to the operating room to fix what is ever damaged. Uh, what I've noticed over my career is that most of the people we do that procedure on, at least in my experience, have been young black men. Mm. And that, over time, really had an impact on me uh, as a person because I identified with those patients as well as their families who I'm talking to afterwards. Many of these patients do not survive long enough to live the hospital due to that procedure. But it is part of the trauma surgeon's uh, armament to use in situations of extreme near-death catastrophes for patients to try to save their lives. This is such an interesting scene because I think, as you're alluding to, this patient does not survive. The operation doesn't work. But after he has died and the cleanup in the in the trauma ward has begun, um, a, a one of the doctors asks you to kind of reach your hand in and feel along where the lungs and the heart are, and you feel 
a hole. And he says, that's a hole in the posterior wall of the left ventricle. This banger never had a chance. And you say, my brain didn't register his choice of words. Before us lay a beautiful, bloody mess. Sure, I thought it was sad this procedure didn't end well. But the idea you could know so much about the human body that you could, in seconds, make decisions and incisions that could save a life, I thought the fellow who did it was a badass, a god. But there's also a lot more going on in that scene. Tell me some of the subtext that you're realizing as you remember it. Yes, the the subtext there is his choice of words to Mm -hmm. describe this uh, dead patient as a banger which, you know, is a pejorative euphemism that people use to describe young black men, which I fit that description at that time, right? And I admit in the book, I said, look, I've used that term myself uh, before then and many times after. So it, I'm, I'm showing how I have evolved as well over the years. I'm, I'm putting my faults on display for the reader to see that during that time, it was the medicine and the, the procedures and the adrenaline that trumped uh, my thoughts of the shared humanity I have with my patients, particularly my black patients. And to be in a situation in met as a medical trainee where this sort of thing happened all the time, where they would speak pejoratively of black patients. And uh, we as trainees, or at least I felt I could not speak up in that situation mm. because what would that mean for me in my future career? Would I get the letters of recommendation I needed to go to the top-notch training institutions? Uh, you know, would I get hired in the future? Would I be considered a troublemaker? Uh, I don't feel that way anymore, but it, it took some evolution for me to get to where I am now. The other thing that you just referred to a bit earlier is you saw the consequences of inequity in healthcare, it sounds like almost from the beginning. And I just want you to describe a bit of of how that manifests itself in an emergency department. How do you see that day in and day out? Absolutely. And we should mention that as far as academics, training centers with medical schools and residencies, many, if not most, are co-located next to areas of extreme poverty and racial segregation. And this not by accident, that was by design because it, pro- it provided fertile training ground for trainees as well as people for research, uh, medical research. And as someone who's been grown up in acad- academia, medical school, residency, and as an attending, uh, I've been a part of that, um, uh, that, that, that system that really exploits these systemic injustices that occur. So I've seen it since day one of my medical school in the patients that we were seeing, but also it's also the way that we were taught medicine, right? We talk about uh, being black is a risk factor for X, Y, and Z. And as a student hearing this over and over again from your professors, uh, from your attendings, uh, the reality is it's not, the color of our skin is the systemic racism that places certain populations at increased risk for certain health diseases, including the public health crisis of gun violence. 
You know, what I wondered is when someone would come into the emergency room in, in crisis, whether you would see all of the other kind of consequences of, I don't know, di- diabetes, not well treated, heart conditions that weren't well treated, and whether you were realizing that that, that is a result of the inequities that exist in the, in the healthcare system. I mean, and then it's amplified, right, by the crisis that the patient is in. That's what I'm curious about is how it just kept appearing before you as a, as a trauma surgeon. It, it really became a way of life for my, for my professional career. Uh, as a trauma surgeon, primarily focused on uh, life-threatening injuries due to gun violence and uh, motor vehicle crashes mm-hmm. and workplace incidents, but also as a general surgeon and someone who works in the intensive care unit, I dealt with a number of other chronic diseases, such as uncontrolled diabetes, uh, uncontrolled hypertension, kidney failure, heart disease, and many times within the same patient. So the healthcare system is is part of of the creation of this systemic inequity, but we can also be part of the solution. And I think there is a movement within healthcare, especially in academia, to acknowledge uh, the role our healthcare system has played in manifesting the racial injustice in healthcare that persists today. Uh, to reverse that, it's going to take a lot uh, of work. And for me, over my career, you know, I, I talk about this in a book that I didn't give much thought to it in the early days of my career. I just accepted that this was the way it was. And as a black doctor, I could be part of the solution for black people. Uh, But I realized that there's only so much I could do in the hospital. There is much more that has to be addressed upstream Mm -hmm. before people even get into the hospital. What happens outside the hospital is infinitely more important to our health and safety than what happens inside the hospital. By the time they get to me, it's really too late. I do want to understand, because you, you've described a lot of scenes of really high-pressure situations where you're making you know, split-second decisions. I understand the adrenaline of that kind of medicine, I guess just from the outside, right? Reading memoirs like this or watching television shows or something. But I'm really interested in why the stakes of what is often all-or-nothing surgery appeals to you? I mean, delve in a little bit, (laughs) Dr. Williams, and tell me what it is about this kind of medicine that was so alluring for for so long. I I think my personality, I'm I'm someone who likes to be pulled in multiple directions at the same time. Uh, You know, I'm a musician, I, I play drums, so I have my arms and my feet going in different directions when I'm playing music. Uh, I like to read a lot of a wide variety of different sorts of, um, of books. I uh, went to an Air Force Academy where we were challenged in many ways, physically, mentally, academically. Uh, so always being pushed to the limits uh, psychologically and physically is, I think, something that's just sort of innate uh, within me. Mm. So going into medicine where there are a lot of options for what I could specialize in cardiology, pulmonology, right. uh, even different types of surgery, whether it's colorectal surgery, surgical oncology. Uh, it was trauma surgeon. That is clearly the natural fit for my personality. 
Uh, I'd say, you know, I didn't choose trauma surgery. Trauma surgery chose me. And that first team we talked about earlier in the, uh, when I was a medical student encapsulates all, all that. Just the specialty itself, the procedures we do, how we take care of patients, but also the other people that gravitate towards that, uh, the trauma team of nurses and technicians and therapists and other surgeons. I, I just felt that these were my people. I love being in the in the emergency department at 2 a.m. on a Friday night, <laughs> hanging out with the team, waiting for the next disaster to come in. Uh, <laughs> wow. I know it sounds rather morbid, <laughs> eh, eh, but it's, that's, that's what attracts me about this. And we get to, we really get to be there for strangers on possibly the, some of the worst days of their lives. Like we don't wake up expecting to get a critical injury, but that happens every single day in this country. So to be able to be part of comforting people and trying to save lives, uh, I feel it's an honor and a privilege. Uh, and I get out a lot out of it as well, but I hope I'm giving as much back to those I cross paths with. Carrie Miller here. You're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's my Friday book show and podcast, and I'm in conversation with Dr. Brian H. Williams. Uh, he's a. You're hearing us talk about some of his career as a trauma surgeon. He went through the Air Force Academy and then decided to go to medical school and then was drawn into a career as uh, a trauma surgeon. His new memoir is titled The Bodies Keep Coming, Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal. Uh, I read an interesting NIH paper that came out in April about stress disorders that trauma care providers experience. And you do write about this kind of experience of disassociation that you've been through when it's when it's a particularly difficult conversation that you have to have with the spouses or loved ones of someone who has died. But here's an interesting narrative from this NIH paper from a trauma surgeon. Merely the sound of my pager alarming sends me into a fight or flight response mode. It read, pediatric alpha trauma alert, two-year-old male, gunshot wound, unresponsive. Immediately, I have questions and emotions that won't be answered until I meet this patient face-to-face. The anticipation of the unknown is chilling. And then this surgeon adds, this feeling of doom, honor, and powerlessness is piercing and perpetual. I don't try to predict the day or time, but I know it will happen again and again. It's simply part of my contribution to society. Does that resonate? Absolutely. I I empathize with the the person that made uh, that statement, and I totally understand where where they are coming from. Uh, Because traumas do not happen on a schedule, you don't decide I'm going to come in at 11 a.m. with a gunshot wound. So having that pager there as your uh, alarm when something goes off, you just never know when it's going to go off. So you're, you're always, always anticipating something happening. And I can see how over time that could be anxiety uh, provoking. Uh, but I also do, you know, knowing the trauma surgeons that I work with, there there is a lot of professionalism and, um, I don't know, just, just, just feeling good about our training that we receive to be able to respond during these times of crisis. Uh, leadership during times of crisis, it requires a certain sort of mindset. Uh, and during that time, we can actually fall back upon our training. 
It's it's afterwards, right? Mm. You do this day in and day out. How do you leave it behind to go home to be with your families, right? I, I think about this all the time. I I see I see danger everywhere because I've seen so many, not just the gunshot victims, but other ways that strange ways people get injured that incapacitate them for life mm. or they die from. That I've instilled this hyper vigilance uh, in my wife and daughter. <laughs> For, for better or worse. Like, there's just simple things, like if you're going to cross the street, you definitely need to look both ways multiple times because I've seen people get hit <laughs> from the driver looking to the right who's making a left turn, uh, things like that. So um, that sort of anxiety has you know, kind of spilled over into my personal life. Yeah. Um, but I, I, wouldn't want to, I wouldn't change anything. Like, we need people like us in this profession. I don't know how you raise a child, you know, with any kind of peace of mind, uh, given what you've just described. It'd be very difficult. It sounds like it has been. Yes? It's, I think anyone that's raising children can be hypervigilant about their safety. I look at it through a different lens because of the, the work I do. Uh, but I'll give you a, kind of a funny anecdote because of the work I do. I cannot watch, if you ever watch a show, America's Funniest Videos, where they show the pratfalls and the people sliding up. Uh-huh. Like, my wife and daughter love that show. I cannot watch during those because all I'm thinking about is they cut it right there, but what happened after that? <laughs> right. So they make fun of me. Like, you're a trauma surgeon, but you can't watch this show? What kind of trauma surgeon are you? Like, right. Well, I know too much. <laughs> right. Tell me a little bit about the therapy that um – that has been helpful because you've described what I, what I said was kind of a disassociation. Is that the right description of, of what you found yourself slipping into in some of these most difficult discussions with the patients of, with the parents of the patients who have died or the loved ones? Yes, I think that's fair. And really the, the tipping point was the, uh, mass shooting of Dallas police officers in July 2016. Uh, there were 14 police officers shot. Seven were brought to the hospital where I was working as a trauma surgeon that night. And three had critical injuries and uh, died from their wounds. And this is something I, I still think about this night every day. It's just always with me. And there was a moment where I did something I've done many times before. I, I had to change out of my bloodied scrubs put on clean scrubs, button up my white coat, and then go sit across from a family and tell them about the death of their loved one due to gun violence. Mm. And it was after that, when I left the room, uh, I found a quiet spot in the hallway, and I, I fell to the floor, was crying, Carrie. I mean, convulsively crying, which is not something I do, I had done for, you know, since I was a child. Uh, I can't really explain why that happened, but at that moment, there were cracks mm-hmm. appearing within me uh, after that incident. And uh, I tried to compartmentalize that for a long time, but clearly there was something not right. Uh, my wife recognized that. And I think people that go through trauma, we were able to function day to day. You can wall it off, go to work, socialize, and nobody would know. Uh, but my wife knew. And I, I ended up going into therapy. And therapy uh, was where I was, unable to, I was able to unpack a lot of this, uh, continue this post-traumatic growth. 
uh, you can be stagnant post-trauma, but I wanted I would start to grow. And really, it was from that, those sessions that the book kind, kind of grew from that. Yeah. I didn't plan to write a book. I didn't want to write a book to be therapeutic, but it was as a result of a ther- my therapist and an assignment she gave me that the book blossomed. <laughs> you had a, a conversation with one of the, the, the father of one of the police officers who died on that day in July of 2016, um, Officer Zamaripa's father, uh, that you recounted, I think, pretty much word for word. Tell us, tell us what that was like to go out and talk with this officer's father and then what he said to you. It, you know, that was a challenge speaking uh, to him, and I'm actually very close to them to this day. Are we, you? We communicate oh, pretty wow. frequently. Yes, yes. The and I have to put your listeners in a back to that time period, 2016. If you recall, that was the election uh, between Trump and Clinton. So we had all of that going on. We had um, the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando about a month prior to this mass shooting. We had Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were shot and killed by police just days before this shooting. Here in the Twin Cities. So there was a crescendo of of events happening over the course of the year in regards to racial justice and policing and the election that kind of all bubbled over. Actually, bubble is not even the, the right way to describe it, but just on July 7, 2016, that came to a head. So I had all that in the back of my mind as I'm going to talk to this uh, this family about uh, Patrick, knowing that at that time I found out that there was a black shooter that was targeting police officers downtown. Um, so, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh God, I'm going to go talk to this, this family about this shooting. After all this is going on, how will this go? And he, he cut me off before I even was able to finish. I mean, I have a way of doing these things all the time because I want to make sure that I don't add trauma on top of trauma mm-hmm. to family members. But as I went into my, my um, description, he cut me off and said, uh, thank you, doctor. I know you did everything you could. I want to thank the entire team. I know my son is dead. And that just, that kind of threw me off because I didn't expect that. And he's thanking me when I, at that moment, felt like a complete failure. I, I felt I'd failed uh, his son, uh, the family and the Dallas Police Department uh, with the three deaths that occurred that night. It was after that meeting when I went to the hallway, fell to the floor, and started crying. You say in, in that part of the memoir, many families had thanked me in moments like this, but 7-7 was a different tragedy in so many ways. I'd been unable to save this man's son, a Dallas cop, killed in the line of duty. Yet when he heard the news, he had found the composure and the kindness to thank me. I offered to answer any questions later if needed, stood, straightened my white coat, and excused myself from the room. Years later, Rick's words and belief in me remain an immense gift. We just explain why. (laughs) Like I said, at the time, I felt like I had failed in my responsibility to save these police officers. And I, I know that their wounds were beyond saving, but at the time, uh, 
that rationale wasn't something that was, you know, getting through to me. I felt these cops came in, they were shot near death. I'm a trauma surgeon and I should have saved them. So for him to show that sort of compassion for me just threw me a bit. Uh, And as I went through my, you know, therapy and growth uh, post-tragedy, I've I've fallen back upon those words many times. And as I said, we're pretty close and we see each other frequently. And I actually, before I published the book, before I sent it to production, I sent them the pages um, to make sure that they were okay with what was what was being written. And I did that for all the police officers mm. that, that I cared for to make sure the families were uh, were okay with what was was being written. And I made changes based on their uh, on their requests. Um, but the Zamaripa family still close to to this day, and they'll like, they'll actually be at the book uh, launch next week. Wonderful. You know, it's interesting. I didn't think you were going to use the word failure for not being able to, I mean, the heroic things that you and the team of doctors and nurses and staff did to try to save these officers. Um, Of course, now it reads like it was almost, it looked, sounds like it was almost impossible. So what have you come to understand about why failing you know, using that term just doesn't really fit, I guess, for for what has happened when a patient dies. You're absolutely correct, Carrie. That that doesn't fit, and this is how, how therapy and my wife were able to help me come to terms uh, with this. Uh, I describe a scene in the book where the therapist is talking to me about this, and she says, "Why do you feel like a failure?" We have a back and forth, and she says, "Look." In your line of work, people die all the time. <laughs> you should know this better than anybody else. And uh, that, that sort of resonated and began to grow um, as I moved forward. So I, I think because of what was happening in the nation with the multiple mass shootings and the, the, the police uh, killings and the calls for racial justice, on top of this mass shooting at a peaceful protest uh, in my hometown. And i also tell you, Carrie, that was my night off from work. Mm-hmm. I was not supposed to be working that night. I filled in for my partner. Uh, I think that all came together, and, and it doesn't make sense for someone like me who's always about uh, 2 plus 2 equals 4. You know, I'm an engineer. <laughs> I'm a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I look back now, and I realize that how much I've changed as a person and how it's also allowed me to have much more much deeper relationships with the people around me, like my wife and my daughter and, and friends and colleagues, because uh, I've opened myself up more to the emotional side mm-hmm. <laughs> of my personality. I think, again, I want to remind listeners that in July of 2016, uh, Philando Castile had been killed by police officers here in the Twin Cities. Alton Sterling had been killed by police in Baton Rouge. And then these officers are killed in Dallas, who, as you said, are responding to what was a peaceful protest. So I want to talk to you a bit about what happened at the press conference in Dallas. It attracted a lot of attention. And I think it reflected something that had been ignored in the days after the officers were shot. So why don't we listen to some of what you said 
at the Dallas press conference, and then we can talk about what followed from there. The preceding days of more black men dying at the hands of police officers affected me. I understand the anger and the frustration and distrust of law enforcement, but they are not the problem. The problem is the lack of open discussions about the impact of race relations in this country. And I think about it every day that I was unable to save those cops when they came here that night. Dr. Williams, what do you, when you listen to that, what do you feel? I still get emotional when I hear that clip or see that clip. It, it, it takes me right back, not to the press conference, but to uh, 7-7 that night. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a long time where I couldn't even finish that. I would, I would start crying. Um, I feel I've gotten better since then, but it makes me uh, very emotional. But also, that is the moment that everything changed. Uh, 7-7 was an incident, but that press conference is what really, that's when my, my comfortable life of anonymity evaporated. Uh, I was asked to go to that press conference by my colleagues. I initially declined. I didn't want to be part of this. I was still, it was a trigger to think about that night. Mm-hmm. And I did not want, I didn't want to be in front of cameras talking about it. But my wife, she's the one that said, look, you have to go. This is, get over yourself. This is bigger than you. There are, you know, you've been, you've been I, checked out a, I checked out a social media news for a few days. She said they're talking about Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, and Blue Lives Matter. They're saying black men are evil. And you need to go so that people can see that there is a black doctor in charge that night trying to save these police officers. Don't have to say anything. Just sit there so they can identify you and be seen. Which, you know, at the time, I, I felt that that's where the tokenism was coming in. Like, I'm just the black face to be seen. Uh, uh, but what I felt didn't matter. But it was throughout the press conference as I heard the commentary that was happening. It uh, didn't sit well with me. And I felt important things were not being addressed. And that's when I decided to, to speak up. It was unplanned. It just came out of my mouth during that time period. And once I was done, I thought to myself, well, Brian, tomorrow you're going to get fired. <laughs> wow. Let me, let me come back to that in a minute, though, but because I want to make sure we've got the right context. You know, the, shooter, the sniper who shot these officers was black, but that wasn't something that happened in a vacuum. Because as you've noted, these other incidents were roiling our communities here in the Twin Cities, absolutely and beyond. And you were taking note of something that had really not been, it sounds like, I went back and read some of the coverage, it really sounds like it had not been addressed yet in Dallas. Is that fair to say? And what would you add to that? That's absolutely correct. This was essentially being presented as a mass shooting of police officers by a crazed black man. That's what it was distilled into when 
from my perspective, there were much larger societal issues that were fueling this um, that go happen at the time. The rampant gun violence and mass shootings that were occurring, uh, more officer-involved shootings of black men, most recently Philando Castile and Alta Sterling, as you had mentioned. Uh, and that was part of this because the sh- shooter, he was there targeting white cops because of this. Mm-hmm. This is what he told the SWAT negotiator that was trying to talk him down. So uh, that's all public record. He was there to shoot white cops. Right. And I, I, I'm not justifying any of this, but I'm saying like that needs to be discussed. How how race and racism and gun violence intertwined to result in this preventable and avoidable tragedy, as far as I'm concerned. And we're we're sitting here on, on with this national press conference, an opportunity to discuss this and bring this to light for the nation, and nobody was going there. And I just could not stay silent anymore. I'd been silent my entire life up to that point about these issues, but at that moment, I decided. If you don't do it now, Brian, no one ever will. And this is the one chance that we can't have to bring this to light. And all the consequences, you need to accept those as a price of doing business. Why did you think you'd be fired, though? Because for mass shootings, especially when they involve police officers, Mm -hmm. we do not talk about racism or gun violence or police brutality especially if I'm there to, as I felt, to represent management, those were not not issues to be discussed in that forum. So I felt as an employee that once I went there, knowing the controversy that would come from that, that the next step would be, thank you for your services up to this point. You are now out of a job. That's how I felt. I don't know if that was actually a true possibility, (laughs) but I did believe that that would be the end of my career after that press conference. What happened? It, the, the, the clip went, that press conference was live. It went viral. Uh, and in the aftermath, you know, I was, gave a number of uh, interviews to local, state, international media. I talked to the BBC, talked to the Canadian Broadcasting System. Uh, I went to New York and appeared on the CNN town hall about race and policing, went to D.C., uh, was on a, in a town hall with uh, President Obama. Uh, so for about two weeks after that, it just, I was around the world, and suddenly I was a spokesperson for these issues of racism and policing and gun violence. And, and mind you, Carrie, I would, did not want that role. I was not prepared for it. My entire career, I had, I, I was very, I, I avoided any interactions with the media. When I was asked to do an interview, I declined. And I frequently was because people wanted to hear from a black trauma surgeon about gun violence. And I didn't want to be that guy. That was something, not a role that I did not want to accept. That was, that was back then. I've accepted I need to step into this in order to make a a change. And from there, I went on speaking around the country about issues. And even to this day, seven years later, there are people that will tell me, yeah, I saw your press conference. And I have to remind them, it wasn't my press conference. There were seven of us, and everyone spoke. But as far as the public sees, all I remember is those two minutes where I spoke, and uh, nobody else existed. And 
you know, I still have to reckon with that, like how that penetrated. And that's something for all of us. We all can make a difference if you just show up and speak up when the time is right. So it sounds like um, you come into much more visibility and then you realize that what you're saying about gun violence is, well, it's important, but it's also resonating in some communities. And that leads you into, is it right to call it activism on gun violence issues? Yeah, I think that's uh, very fair to call it activism, which uh, for my generation of folks in, in medicine, that was not something we we embraced. Uh, but I, be, I began to move into that direction because it wasn't just about gun violence. It's much broader than that because gun violence intersects with so many other issues in our society. But it was also about healthcare injustice and what that meant for us as a as a country, whether it's education or, or housing or, or policy. I began to see these you know, ever-expanding concentric circles about what I was doing and how it interconnected to other things outside the hospital and decided, like, how do I get involved in being part of the solution? How do I put away my scalpel and my white coat and take my experience and be part of healing in the community? And, uh, you know, I, I've stumbled around for a while because I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at some point, I really found my stride. And I feel like right now is when things are coming to fruition. So everything that happened in the past, uh, all the mistakes I made, uh, that's all well worth it because now I feel I can bring it all to bear to have a much greater impact on community healing and uplifting individuals and populations of people. You write um – When we're talking about guns in America, it's important to start not with black and brown men, but with white men. I don't know that the country is at all comfortable with the idea of that. Are are we, I should say, not are they, but are we? Uh, I do not expect people will be comfortable with much of what I wrote in the book. Uh, including that statement. But we, but we, we talk about gun violence prevention and saving lives. We, we, we have to talk about race and racism and think about who we consider to be the protectors, who we consider to be the patriots and the saviors, and who are the, uh, the people to be feared, who are the, the criminals. Even when we talk about the victims, who are worthy victims and who got what they deserve. Mm-hmm. Race and racism is mixed up into all that. But even more than that, uh, racism has been part of our gun policy since, since the Second Amendment uh, was enshrined in the Constitution. If we look through our history, uh, a lot of the laws that have been passed have been targeted to disarming black people. And even today, we have laws that uh, you know, make it easier for extrajudicial killing of black people. And I'm talking about standard ground laws. Uh, but the broader point is, if we want to save lives, we have to talk about race. Because the reality is that white men are dying from gun violence by significant numbers. And we don't talk about that. If we want to save lives, let's talk about who we consider worthy of protection, and worthy of being mourned in their deaths. I think it's a good moment to mention Carol Anderson's book. I'm sure you've read it about 
how racism has influenced the development of gun policy and gun laws. Absolutely. I used, she, she's, her book is a sourced in my book, so if you look at the references, it's there. Mm-hmm. And I, one of her quotes that she talks about is, racism lies around like a loaded weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought this was a profound statement. Mm-hmm. But it, there, there is hope, right? As long as we acknowledge our history, uh, not out of fear, but f- for understanding, we can understand what is happening now and then use that knowledge and information to create a better future for us all. So I talk about a lot of heavy topics on there. I fillet myself open because I want to bring you, Carrie, along with me on this journey. A lot of personal stories, but we're going to explore some of these much bigger issues happening in society, gun violence, racism, healthcare justice, but it's with an eye and a path towards hope and healing. I want to leave you inspired at the end that yes, we've looked in the mirror It's not all pretty, but in the end, we can do better. Well, Dr. Williams, you definitely brought me along on the journey. (laughs) I was in those those ERs with you and beyond. I want to ask you about something um, that the Pew Poll, um, and you know, high-quality research done by uh, the Pew Center, uh, they had a poll that came out on June 28th, 2023, Americans believe gun violence is a growing problem, but Americans are divided on the culpability of gun ownership. I mean, in some ways, Dr. Williams, I feel like Americans have decided that this cost that you've just talked about, that you're working to to lighten, to change, is kind of worth the the privilege and the ability to have guns. That's a, that, that is a profound change to try to enact. And I know you're working on that, but what do you do with that? Well, look at these polls. As you just mentioned, most Americans do want to keep our children and our communities safe from gun violence. And we live in a country where there's more guns than, than people. Uh, we live in a country where... Eighty percent of the uh, weapons are owned by twenty percent of the population, so they're they're we're skewed as to who owns the guns and what they are doing with them. Um, but there's broad agreement that we can do better to to keep our communities and our children safe. And you're right, gun ownership is part of American identity, individual identity. When you challenge anyone's identity. People dig in, and at its core, the book is about you know my identity and how it's evolved over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, with so much death, I've, I I have seen too much needless death and suffering to not try to do my part to save more lives and make things safer for the next generation. I know it won't be easy. I know it. I can't do it alone. But I want to join those out there that want to do this. And the reality is most Americans agree that we should. We just disagree on how that should be done. Okay, I want to ask you a somewhat challenging question here. Uh, You've said you're running for Congress. Congress is deeply dysfunctional, particularly on gun policy. (laughs) I mean, don't you think you could be much more influential and consequential 
outside of a, you know, of a place that just seems uh, entranced by nonsense and not all that interested in making, you know, in legislating. Now you know what I think of Congress at the moment, but I'm curious about (laughs) why that's your next path. Uh, Short, absolutely not. I I feel that Congress is the place where I can have the most impact. (laughs) And and that's for a couple of reasons. First, there has never been a trauma surgeon in Congress. Hmm. So that is a perspective that is missing when they have the debates about what we should do to save lives. Someone who has been on the front lines of this needless death and suffering for decades to be in the chambers debating, but also submitting bills this would that would be historic, but two and, and here is um, here's kind of the tipping point for me where I decided to uh, begin to consider running for Congress. I actually t- spent a year in Washington full time as a health policy advisor in Congress. Uh, so I was not doing it. I was not operating. No patient care. I was full time. Went there as a part of a fellowship uh, through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. But during that time, uh, I had a chance to see that Congress can do big things quickly to help a lot of people. And I will talk specifically about the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which was the most significant gun safety legislation passed in a generation. Uh, I worked in the office of the senator who pushed for that bill, and I saw, okay, this can happen. It would be great if I, as a trauma surgeon, could be part of this discussion and this solution moving forward. That law will save thousands of lives, and it was done on a bipartisan basis, but there's more that can be done. So that's why I feel by being there in, as a member of Congress, I could have much more impact at a systemic level than I could outside as a doctor working in the hospital. Well, thank heavens idealism still lives and breathes, right? (laughs) We need that. (laughs) Dr. Williams, thank you very much for the conversation. Brian Williams' new memoir is titled The Bodies Keep Coming, Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal. It was a pleasure to talk with you. This is a lot of fun, Carrie. Thank you very much for having me on the show.